The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. This should work better? Maybe? All right. Yes. Uh, so God said, um, okay, let's start over. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all those who were with him, put away with foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answered me the day of my distress and that has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Sechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him, where he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alumbakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give you the land, I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up with him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the place of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Rudy, for sharing. And um, tough way to start out with uh, <laughs> the microphone. Speaking of microphones, check one, two. Am I on? Hello. There we are. Uh, so, Rudy, thank you for sharing with us, and I welcome Rudy here this past week. The staff uh, welcomed him here, and uh, he's a great young man. I hope you'll get a chance to meet him soon. Thank you for reading the scripture this morning, Rudy. I want to just uh, do a little bit of an update uh, for the church family that are here and listening online. Uh, my name is Terry Jank. I'm one of the pastors here at White Ridge Baptist Church, and um, I, heard a great, uh, I heard a great interview uh, this past week 
between a fellow named uh, Brandon O'Brien of, of Redeemer City Church in Manhattan. He was interviewing a man by the name of Alan Hirsch, who's a missiologist known for recently the book called The Forgotten Ways, Reactivating the Missional Church. And it was really a conversation about how we can improve ourselves as churches in the midst of this pandemic. And um, we're having to rethink how to do church, aren't we? And uh, he shares a brilliant illustration. He talks about how uh, he was talking to a, a chess expert one day. And this chess expert said, if you want to learn how to play really good chess, what you need to do is remove your queen from your side. But don't let your opponent remove his queen. And you're going to get beat every time, back and forth. You're going to get beat. But you're going to learn how all the other back row players and even the pawns can be utilized in the game. You're going to get a better picture of the entire picture of, the, of chess because you're not going to be overly dependent on your queen. And then he went on to say, so to the church, he said, who is your queen? What is your queen? And then he answered the question for us, and he said, the queen of the average North American church is the Sunday morning service. And we have over-depended on the Sunday morning service. And we need to learn how to utilize all of the other assets of ministry, the back row, the rooks and ponds and, and the uh, knights and, and castles and so on. And I thought to me it was a, just a, a compelling illustration, a brilliant illustration. And I share this illustration with you for two reasons. Number one, I share it with you because I want you to know that um, the staff and the board of this church family have been working diligently to consider not just how to excel and do ministry Sunday morning in a way that reaches uh, people that are at home that can't be in the building with us. We want to continue to improve that, but also because we want to learn to in, in create new avenues of ministry. And come to end of August to early September, we're going to be communicating with you some of those new aspects of ministry that we've been seeking to create. And uh, so we ask you to pray for that, pray for us as we get ready to launch that. And the second reason I share that illustration with you is because you're, you're part of this, this whole game. You're part of this whole chessboard. You're part of this church family. And uh, don't stop being the church. I want to encourage you to, to reach out to your neighbors. I want to encourage you to go for coffee with a brother or sister in Christ. I want to encourage you to have the meaningful conversations about faith in person with somebody that you can trust. I want you to, to encourage you to continue to be the church. And just because there's a lot of formal programming that is not happening, don't let that stall you. Don't let that take away from your ability to reach out to somebody and to actually do fellowship, do worship, do prayer, do Bible study. Let this summer not be some kind of a hiatus, some kind of a, a stall in your walk with God. Let this summer be a fast forward in some avenue of fellowship that God wants to bring you into. So may the Lord bless you. Let me just pray with us before we look into the Scripture. Father, we thank you for this time. Lord, uh, it's, it's hard to say thank you because COVID-19 has been a difficult uh, four months for the, the world, including us here in Canada and here at this church family. But Lord, we thank you that you are awakening 
different things, values, and priorities in our, in our hearts, including how to do ministry in a way that is not overly dependent on Sunday morning. God, we want to be the church seven days a week. And we want to learn how to reach out in the small pockets, in the individual relationships, as well as in the bigger ways. And Father, I ask you to help us as we get ready for this coming fall ministry especially. Would you help us, Lord, to uh, know how to do the kind of ministry that exalts Jesus Christ, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and that depends on the power of the Holy Spirit. And that, it, that reminds us all that the Father God that you are is the source of all that we need for life and godliness. And so would you help us, God. And now even this morning as we open up the book of Genesis again, would you help us to understand a message for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Amen. As we've been studying the book of Genesis in the past several weeks, we've been looking at the patriarchs. And, of course, one of the things that I have been very conscious of is that I've been noticing that the patriarchs all seem to have two significant sons. Have you noticed that uh, Abraham had Isaac and Ishmael, but only one was the son of promise? Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Only one was the son of blessing. And Jacob, though he had 12 sons, we're going to see that only two of them really are significant in terms of, of holy history. And you're going to see that from now, starting next week until the very end of the Genesis series at the end of August, you're going to see that the son of Jacob, Joseph, is the one that gets, gets front row center. He's, he's how holy history is written, Joseph. And yet Joseph is not the son of the seed of Abraham. The covenant is passed on through Judah. And so we see that again in the life of Jacob there are two significant sons. And so we see that God in his main writing of the plot of holy history, we are, we are following it through Genesis and we're going to end it uh, at the end of the summer before we turn the page to a new series. Well, last week... Um, Doug, Pastor Doug unpacked for us a very difficult scripture and a very dark time in the life of Jacob's family. It was a time when the prince of Shechem in the land of Canaan took Dinah, the only daughter of Jacob, and he violated her. And there are indications in the text that suggest that perhaps Jacob had become careless. Jacob had perhaps become careless with his own faith, with his own family, and uh, his daughter maybe was left in a vulnerable place. That's what we get. Parents have this responsibility, don't they, to protect and to guide their children. And sometimes children can step out of that umbrella of safety and, and, and end up having things come at them that their parents would have protected them from. And, and we're not sure in this scripture whether it's Jacob that steps out of faithfulness to God and he's careless with his daughter or whether it is Dinah that steps out of the umbrella of safety that her family had given her. But we read in the scripture in this chapter 34 that uh, Pastor Doug preached last week that she went out to see the women of the land. And in the process of seeing the women of the land, she attracted the attention of a young man who took advantage of her. He happened to be the prince of Shechem. Now, before Jacob can do anything about this, um, before Jacob can do anything about this, we see 
that his sons hear about it and take matters into their own hands. And uh, they, they scheme. They make a deal with the, the Shechemites. And they say to the men, if, if, we, if we will become part of you, you must be circumcised, every male among you. And the city fathers talk about it, and they think, oh, all our assets could be united, and this could be a wonderful thing. And so, and they end up saying yes to the, the sons of Jacob. And then the sons of Jacob put on their swords and they go in while these men are still wounded and hurting from the circumcision and they slaughter them. And then they plunder the city, the town of 500 to 1,000, as Doug shared last week. And when Jacob hears about it, he is angry with his sons. He's angry because he's afraid that all the Canaanite peoples around this town of Shechem are going to gather forces and come against him. And so we see in this scripture the, the, the trauma and the difficulty of this. And it leads to chapter 35 where Jacob returns to Bethel, the passage of scripture that Rudy read for us this morning. And chapter 34 ends, chapter 35 begins, and it says, God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau, and so Jacob went up. And we see that Jacob had fled first to Bethel when he was running away from his brother Esau, and now the second time that he's going to Bethel, it's when he's running away from the trouble caused by his sons with the Canaanites. Um, And this is the theme that we see in this text, and the theme is this returning to the house of God. That's what Bethel means this returning to the house of God. It's a theme that is recurring in the life of Jacob. Now, you would think that at this stage of Jacob's life, he would have had a fairly solid walk with God. You would think that he would have settled down to a three-mile-an-hour walk with God, just staying in step with the Holy Spirit. But that's not the Jacob that we're introduced to in Scripture. We see Jacob growing old as a man, yet still wrestling with a rebelliousness, sort of, an independent spirit. We see Jacob as a stubborn and independent man, a slow learner in some ways. And uh, he has a default setting to depend on himself and his own wisdom instead of trust in God. And so he starts to drift from the last time that we saw him in chapter 32 where he had this incredible epiphany. We see him drifting away from God. How do we see the life of drift? Well, drifting in Jacob's life takes the form of settling in a land that probably God did not want him to belong to, Shechem. Secondly, not fulfilling his vow to God at Bethel. Still don't know anything about this 10% that he vowed way back in chapter 28. Thirdly, we see that his family was mixing with the Canaanites. His daughter had already made some friends, and, and it led to this violation. We see that he had, for, he had foreign gods in his own home. He had to tell his family, get rid of all those false gods, because we're going to go back to Bethel where the true God is. What's with that? We see also that he, he, his daughter was in the wrong company. Basically, Jacob seemed to have lost his way. And uh, I don't know about you, but somehow, in spite of all this sadness in Jacob's story, I find great encouragement from Jacob. I find that there's an encouragement from Jacob's story because uh, I can be a lot like Jacob. 
I don't know if you find in your heart a wandering spirit, uh, a laziness sometimes in your walk with God. But I can be a lot like Jacob. I can be a slow learner. I can look at my own life and I can see that God is teaching me now lessons that he started teaching me in my teenage years and early 20s. Now, it might be that I'm at a deeper place in those faith lessons, but it's the same lessons that God's teaching me about faith and not being independent and trusting him and so on. The story of Jacob teaches us that God, when he sets his covenant love on you, is going to be the hound of heaven. He will not let you go. God is the kind of God that when he sets his love on you through Jesus Christ and you have opened up your life to him and he has brought you into the family and into the fold, he is not going to let you go. He is going to fulfill the promises that he has for you just as we see him do it in Jacob's life. That's the God of the scriptures. And the, the, the thing I want to draw your attention to in this scripture is I want you to see three attributes of God that draw Jacob to return to God at Bethel from this life of drift that he had been engaged in. And the first is that he found that God is the one who had appeared to him, verse 1. And then in verse 3, we see two others, God who had answered him in his distress and God who had been with him wherever he had gone. We're going to consider those three elements of God in our lives. And some of you that are listening this morning, whether you're online at home or whether you're here in the room today, some of you need to do exactly what Jacob is doing in this text. Some of you need to return to God. Just straight up, I'm going to say that. Some of you are going to let the, the message land on you this morning. It's going to come into your ears. And you know intuitively in your heart that what God the Holy Spirit is saying to you is you need to return to God. I'm not saying you need to turn to God because people that need to turn to God, it's the first step into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm talking to the people that need to return to God. You've already had a relationship to God. You've already seen him deliver you. You already know his presence in your life, but you have lived the life of drift. And you're not in step with him now. And so I'm going to ask you, if, if that describes you, in the quietness of this moment, in this very moment, as I am speaking to you, I want you to just pause and say this to God. Father, I think the preacher's talking to me. I think I'm a little bit or a lot like Jacob. God, help me to hear what you want me to hear today. And give me the strength to obey you, whatever that means. Amen. Let's take a look at these three points then and consider them one at a time. I'm calling you this morning to return, first of all, to the God who has appeared to you. I am speaking with those who have known a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he has gone to the cross <laughs> for our sins and that he has been raised from the dead and that he left your sins in the grave and he has given you by the Holy Spirit a, a, a new life, a resurrection life. It's available to you, though you don't always walk in it, it's available to you by faith. 
I'm talking to you to return to the God who has already shown himself to you. Return to him. And if you want to return to him, do exactly what Jacob does in this passage. He goes back to the place where God first met him. Where is that for you? Where did you first really meet God? Jacob knew that it was a place called Bethel. Bethel was the place where Jacob was one day. He was on a trip, long journey, found a place. It was just a random place at the time. His pillow was a stone. He got into a deep dream. He dreamt about a a ladder that was going all the way up to heaven, angels descending and ascending. He woke up and he said, God is in this place. He had an epiphany. He had an encounter with God. And he said, this is going to be called from now on Bethel, the house of God. That's where it happened for him. I can't verify this story. I was looking for it this morning, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it has to do with William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army. It, don't quote me on this, but there was a man one day that returned to a church, a little church, and he was found at the very front at the altar kneeling. And one of the leaders of the church came forward and was just getting near enough to listen, and the man was whispering. And what he heard him say saying was he heard him saying over and over again, do it again. Do it again. He had gone back to the place where he had found a relationship with Jesus Christ. He had grown cold in his faith, and years later, he had come back to the same spot, and he was saying to God, do it again. Just like we sang earlier, do it again. Where is that place for you? Is it at a camp, Bible camp? Is it a Sunday school class? Is it a church service? Was it alone in your room with the Bible open? Was it in another country uh, while, while you were away from home? Where was it? Who, who was it that God used, a person? What was it that happened? What did God do to get your attention? Go back there. If you can't go back physically, go back in your mind to that place. If I were to pick a, a physical place where, where the early years of my spiritual formation took place, I would have to tell you about a place called Camp Hermosa. Hermosa means beautiful in Spanish. It's near Godridge, Ontario, uh, about eight miles north of Godridge, Ontario, on Lake Huron. A shout-out to anybody that is remotely connected to Camp Hermosa. Um, because that was an incredible place for me. And um, there I found uh, a safe place to express my faith. There I found Christian friends. There I I was awakened to a a deeper relationship with God. There I came out of my shell as a shy little boy. There God began to define the leader that was in me. There it was that God developed my faith. But if I were to tell you about Camp Hermosa, and if I were to take you to Camp Hermosa, I would take you to one specific place at Camp Hermosa. It would be called Vesper's Point. And Vesper Point was the place that all the campers went in the evening at sunset. And on the path to Vesper Point, there was a sign on a tree that said, quiet beyond this place. 
And everybody just knew that once you pass that sign, that area was for you to commune with God in silence. Sometimes I'd go there by myself. It became a very important place. I haven't been back. I haven't returned to Camp Hermosa in almost 40 years. But in my mind, when I think of Vesper Point, I think about what God was doing in me, how fresh and exciting and real faith was for me at that time. Where is that for you? Where is that for you? Jacob was told, return to the place where God had appeared to him. Next we see that uh, Jacob was told to go find the God who answers you in your distress. He was drew back to Bethel because that was where God met him in his day of distress. Probably Jacob is thinking at this point about the time when he fled from Esau who was trying to kill him. But it might have been that uh, he's also thinking about the 20 years that he spent uh, serving Laban and many times that he was delivered from distress there. Or might, might be thinking of the most imminent problem he was facing, the Canaanites that were trying to kill him. And yet God, in chapter 35, verse 5, it says, God sent a terror upon the Canaanite people so that they didn't bother Jacob. You see, God indeed was the God who was always meeting up with Jacob in the day of his distress. And if you are a believer, you can, if you will have been observant over the years, you will know that the God of Jacob is your God, and he has met you in the days of your distress. If you're attentive to his ways. Over and over again, God answered Jacob, and we, we who are living centuries later, reading about Jacob in the Bible, we who are now looking at the book of, of Genesis and studying the life of Jacob, we're going, wake up, Jacob. Get with the program. Can't you see how faithful God has been? Every day you mess up or get into trouble, he is with you in the day of distress. Come on. Isn't it easier, so much easier to see the faults of someone else than your own? Isn't it easier to see how someone else goes drifting and gets wayward than we are to see ourselves? And so, can you look back? Can you look back and see how God has answered you in the day of your distress? Maybe you're not, maybe some of you even listening, maybe you're not meant to be alive today. But God, he protected you. Maybe a loved one's not meant to be alive, but God did something in the day of your distress. Or maybe you did lose a loved one, but you can look back at the days of distress following that loved one's loss and say, oh, I see how God met me. Why don't you tell God right now, you're that God for me. Just acknowledge it right now in the quietness of your heart. Just say, God, you have met me in the days of my distress. You know it. You know it. And then finally, I want to I just draw your attention to one more point from this text. 
I want you to think about how Jacob said that he was the God who had been with him wherever he had gone. And, and perhaps you need to return in some way to the God who has been with you wherever you have gone. It was a motivating force for Jacob to go back to Bethel because he knew that the God that he worshipped was waiting there. Because wherever he had gone, somehow God had gone with him. It was true. In Canaan, when he was fleeing from his brother who wanted to kill him, when uh, he was in the wilderness shepherding Laban's flocks and then having to flee from Laban, and then more recently in Shechem or having to flee from the people of the Canaanite peoples, wherever Jacob was, there was God. He could say probably in the words of David, who wrote later on, but he could say, surely goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life. Just like two guards, bodyguards, flanking him, goodness and mercy following me all the days of wherever I've gone. Goodness and mercy have been following me. I think that was Jacob's testimony. But the question is, Jacob, why weren't you following God? Why was God's goodness and mercy having to follow you so often? Why weren't you following God? That's the question we want to ask ourselves. Are you aware that God has followed you with his goodness and mercy? <clears throat> James 4.8, he says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 1 Peter 2.25, it says, For you, you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In chapter 35 that we're reading in Genesis, verse 9, we read that God appeared to Jacob at Bethel. Verse 11, it says that he told Jacob that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty. He has told him before that he is God of Jacob, and uh, now he's saying, I'm God Almighty. And God reminded Jacob of his new name, Israel. He reminded him of his covenant that he's going to make out of him a great nation, He's reminded him of the promise that he's going to inherit all that land where the Canaanites live. And Jacob, in verse 14, finally again sets up a pillar, a pillar of stone. He sets up a pillar in Bethel. And then he pours out a drink offering, which is uh, an offering to God. And then he pours out oil, a place called Bethel. And friends, I want you to know that for any sinner that is returning to God, for any one of us as sinners returning to God, you need to know that there already has been given an offering. The offering has been given at the cross. Jesus Christ's own blood was shed. The offering that has opened up the way for fellowship with the holy God has been given and the, the oil has been poured out on you as well, the oil of healing upon your broken and wounded soul. It all has come by means of the grace that is found in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. This is the incredible grace of the gospel. You know, my favorite parable is the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son. And my favorite part of the parable of the prodigal son story is when the son has come to his senses and is already near the, the farm. He's already kneel, near where his father has been looking out and waiting. And we get a picture of that in various ways. 
the father running to the son. And it says in the scripture, and he arose and he came and he returned to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I don't know what kind of image of God you have in your mind. I don't know what the God concept is that you carry in your heart. But I want you to know that the God of the Bible, the God of Scripture, the posture of the Father is is on tiptoes looking out the window of his home waiting for you to return. And the moment that you turn your heart, come to your senses, incline yourself back to him, he runs out the door to meet you. He falls upon you in compassion. He kisses you. He welcomes you back. He restores you. That's the God that we read about, the posture of our Heavenly Father for those who are his children, those that have drifted away from living under his roof, his protection, and are returning. Let's pray. Father God, if if there's anybody that has come under the listening of this message that is in that place of wandering, in that place of drifting, and Holy Spirit, you have been already today speaking for them to return to you, to their hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray for them right now. And I pray that they will have the faith and the courage by your grace to say yes to you and to start back and to tell someone else about it. Father, would you bless this church family and anybody else that's listening. Lord, I just pray, Father, that that you would help us to return to you with our whole heart, to make you God over everything in our lives to bring to you the smallest things that are in the deepest and darkest closets of our lives or to bring to you the things that are like idols in our hearts, the things that have sort of taken too much attention away from you. Lord, to bring all of that to you and just say, we lay it down, God. And we thank you that you welcome us back. And we thank you for Jesus Christ who has already opened up the way through his sacrifice. Receive our prayer today. Prepare us as we gather around your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship team is going to come now, and in just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And those of you in this room, uh, you'll notice that at the back of the auditorium, there is a table with bread and cup. During this song, would you get up and go to the back and take your time, leave some social distancing, to get the bread and the cup, and then return to your chair. And those of you who are at home during this song, this is your opportunity to to get up and go to the kitchen and to get some bread and some juice and come back to the the video just to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And I will see you in just a moment for that purpose. I want to, again, go back to what we were just discussing is how you see God is really important in in coming to this table, how you see God. 
A.W. Tozer said that uh, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Let me read to you a quote from John Piper. God is a mountain spring, not a watering trough. A mountain spring is self-replenishing. It constantly overflows and supplies others. But a watering trough needs to be filled with a pump or a bucket. So the great question is, how do you serve a spring and how do you serve a watering trough? And how do you glorify God the way he really is? If you want to glorify the worth of a watering trough, you work hard to keep it full and useful. But if you want to glorify the worth of a spring, you do it by getting down on your hands and knees and drinking to your heart's satisfaction until you have the refreshment and strength to go back down into the valley and tell other people about what you found. My hope as a desperate sinner hangs on this biblical truth that God is the kind of God who will be pleased with the one thing that I have to offer him, my thirst. That's why the sovereign freedom and self-sufficiency of God are so precious to me. They are the foundation of my hope that God is delighted not by the resourcefulness of bucket brigades, but by the bending down of broken sinners to drink at the fountain of grace. When you go to the table in your own homes, do you not go to the table at a time when you're hungry and thirsty? Yeah. We go to the tables in our homes because we're hungry and thirsty. We sit down, we eat, and we drink. That's the only reason you should be coming to this table. The only reason that you should come to the Lord's table is because you are thirsty and hungry. Not because you have something to give to God. Do not let communion ever become a bucket brigade, somehow filling up the trough of your religious duty. Do not let the Lord's Supper ever become in your life something that is a religious duty that somehow appeases God in your life. That's not what this is all about at all. This table, my friends, if you've, if you've got one here or if, if it's at your home in your living room, I want you to imagine the risen Jesus Christ is in your living room. He's in this room right now, and he invites you to his table, not because you have anything to offer to that table, but because you are hungry and thirsty. And Jesus Christ has provided everything that you need for that hunger and thirst. And so we read that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this, this, bre this bread represents my body. And he took the cup and he, he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. And then he told his disciples, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so <clears throat> let's take a moment now as we take the bread and the cup to give thanks before we partake. Lord, we thank you now for this bread which represents your broken body. We thank you, Lord, for this cup which reminds us of the blood that you shed, the sacrifice that was poured out, and we thank you, Lord, that, that we can come and, and this, 
This table is the leveler of all of us. It's the equalizer of all of us. We're all sinners that come and we all need your grace and we can't offer you anything toward a right standing with you to maintain that. We just offer ourselves in our thirst and our hunger and we thank you that receive us. You receive us in grace. And so now thank you for the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the bread now and the cup and be thankful. Lord God, thank you for meeting us here today. I thank you for your truth, the truth about the relationship that we can have with you. And Lord, we recognize that even if we have known you already, the most unsatisfying life in you would be a series of choices in this life where we are choosing to fulfill ourselves by our own hands choosing to find joy apart from you, choosing to find solace apart from you, choosing to find direction apart from you, even choosing to do religious things, churchy things, to fill ourselves up. I pray, Lord, that you would call us and that we would hear you over again to come to the spring, the spring of real living water and to just drink and enjoy you. And I pray that we would know that joy because we have come to you not to fill ourselves and not to try to earn something, but just to enjoy your love for us because of Jesus Christ, your son. Please bless us as we go from here. May you be honored by this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Mm -hmm.